All right, Soul Company. How are we doing tonight, Soul Company? It's good to be back. You guys can take a seat. All right, we got some friends in the back. We promise we added so many chairs from the fall, but there's some pockets over here. Shoot. Should we get bleachers? No, we won't do that. That'd be tragic. Two spots right here. Two spots right here. One right here. How exciting. Don't keep shouting out that, otherwise this would be here for a while. Well, it's good to be with you guys. My name is Tony. I'm so excited to be with you tonight. Hey, we're going to be in Romans chapter 6. If you've got a Bible, we'd love you to open up to Romans chapter 6. I sound a little echoey, Grizz. I don't know if that's a problem, but Romans chapter 6 is where we're going to be. It's about 85% of the way through your Bible. And guys, this spring, we got some incredible things coming up for you. So I actually want to share with you where we're headed for the rest of the spring. This week and next week, we're doing Peace with God. We're finishing up our Peace with God series. After that, we're going to have a standalone sermon on common people with an uncommon God. And then we're going into the story of Joseph. Yes, so this, so good. Betrayed by the brothers, hated for being holy, pit to prominence, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Then we're going to jump into 2 Peter and hit all the crazy stuff. So we're going to hit some end time stuff. It's like, when's Jesus come back? Come back and you'll find out. That's a joke, biblically. Anyways, moving on. And then we're ending with our final night of the evening on Isaiah 6 called Throne Room, where we do a night of worship, and it's going to be an incredible time. Got a lot coming up this spring. We're thankful that you guys are here. Thanks for coming back. We will try to find more seats to put into this room. It's already such a fire hazard, so we're a little nervous about it, but we're going to figure it out. Well, let me pray, and then we'll jump into our time together. Father, thank you for moments like this that we get to gather together to hear teaching from your word. Father, thank you for chapters like Romans chapter 6 that sober us and remind us of our sinfulness and your grace. Thank you that this is a holy moment. I pray for people coming into this room tonight where they don't find themselves in an environment like this. And Father, I pray that you would do an incredible thing. In your name we pray. Amen. Grizz, should I use a different mic? Be honest. No, keep it. Just sounds a little sketchy, you know? Madly sus. Let's talk about fears. Fears. Who here is a sucker for a good phobia? Oh, fears. Yes. Spiders? Anyone here afraid of spiders? The fuzzy variety? Okay. Very scary looking. You're like, why are you so fuzzy? I prefer the ones with long legs. Those are better. How about heights? We got any people here scared of heights? Come on. Heights plus intrusive thoughts equals sketchy situation. I don't know if you guys ever been to that. We're like, I, would it hurt that much? I mean, I ask myself that question every time I'm on a bridge. It's tragic. Okay. This one's going to offend some people. Much like my Jeremiah joke last week. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Sugar? Is anyone afraid of sugar? Oh, some health nuts. Ooh, raw milk. Oh, raw dairy. Yeah, look at that, Issa. That's you. I heard you. Gluten-free, fun-free, life-free. <laughs> Feedback, and I'm not even talking. What's going on? Okay. Public speaking. Anyone hate public speaking? Oh, I know. Isn't it tragic? I have to do this for my job. Chris, I could just yell. I don't know if we have better options. Headset? No? Just keep going? 
I hear feedback and it's not the good kind, you know? It's not amens, it's just like, that's what it sounds like. All right, I'll keep going. I've got a ton of fears, spiders, heights, people, you know, the works, sugar. I've got a ton of fears. But I bring that up with you because as I've been processing this week, what my biggest fear in life is, it's not any of those things. But it is that the biggest fear in my life right now is actually my sin. It's the ways, guys, I'm afraid. I don't know if you feel this way, but I am so afraid of being an 80-year-old person with the same sin struggles that I have now. I am so afraid of getting to the end of my life and I'm still as selfish as I am today. I'm still as insecure as I am today. I'm still as arrogant as I am today. I'm not as gentle as I want to be. I'm not as kind as I want to be. That is a genuine fear of mine that at 80 years old, that God wouldn't have been gracious to me enough to sanctify me out of a lot of my sin. I'm afraid of the ways that my sin can get in the way of my gospel impact. That people would look at my life and see the lack of holiness, the immaturity, the brokenness in my life and say, I don't know if I wanna follow a Jesus like that. But more than any of those things, I was talking to my D group this week. Also, if you come to Salt Company this spring, just ready to get uncomfortable by the levels of authenticity, okay? Wow, did he share that? Yes, he did. Uh, that's your thought. I haven't actually shared it with you, so I don't know why you'd be thinking that. Anyways, here's the thing. I was with our D group this week, and I just began to share with them that the greatest fears that I have in my life right now, this is so cliche, is that my sin would hurt my future kid. That actually I would repeat the sin that I experienced with my dad, a relationship marked by anger and abuse, and that somehow that sin would boil out of me and I would hurt my own kid. So honestly, guys, I've been afraid of a lot of things in my life. I've been afraid of the fear of failure. I've been afraid of how am I gonna pay off my mortgage? I feel that one almost every day as I wake up in this stupid house. And then, it's actually a very cute house in Highland Park, very adorable, you would love it. Anyways, moving on. I'm afraid of a lot of things, but the thing I'm most afraid of is my sin and how it can hurt my gospel influence and hurt the people in my life that I most love. So here's the conversation we're gonna be having tonight. The conversation that I wanna have with you is how do we not become people who are 80 and still the same as we are today? How do we not let our sin stop us from our gospel influence? And how do we not let our sin hurt the people closest around us? And here's my answer for you. The way that we kill sin is by taking sin seriously. Three reasons, three things we need to understand if we wanna take sin seriously. We need to understand the gravity of grace, the slavery of sin, and the freedom of obedience. All right, open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter six, verse 15. I almost said John, it's not John, it's Romans. Romans. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to gift you one after the service. It is free. Very exciting. Verse 15 says this. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Hope asked me today to say it very loudly. So by no means. Okay, Hope, I got you. By no means. Paul begins this section of scripture with a really important argument that we're going to see builds off of verse 1 and 2. And verse 1 and 2 says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Yes. Oh, let's do this as a crowd. By no means. See, that was fun. Delightful. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Okay. This is a really important conversation that Paul is trying to have with the Romans because here's the idea. Here's the fundamental question of the logic. If God is fully forgiving and gracious, 
if you'll always forgive me for my sin, then should I just continue sinning? If it is in the character of God to always be gracious and kind, then should I just sin my darn face off? You know, like that's the question they're asking, which honestly is a good question. It's actually a logical question. Because think about this, guys. If this is true, if this logical framework is true, then you could have a win-win. You could do whatever you want in this life. Sin your face right off of you. I mean, you could do whatever you want. You could live however you want. You can do whatever you want. You can live it up on the college lifestyle. And then one day, the day before you die, Jesus is like, stamped forgiven. You go to heaven. That's the question that Paul is asking here. Is that actually the theology of grace? This is what theologians call cheap grace. It's an understanding of grace that is weak and flimsy and built upon human logic versus divine intervention. It's a belief system that produces people who define Christianity as a scoreboard of sin and forgiven rather than relationship with the Father. This is the logic that leads to, well, you know, that Christianity thing's great, you know, for my uncle, but he's like old and wrinkly, you know, and I'll just start following Jesus when I'm around his age. You know, I'll live my life for the first 40 years of my life. I'll accomplish all of my dreams. I'll live the exact way I want to in college. And then, you know, I'll start taking following Jesus seriously later. The logic is this. If God's going to forgive me, then why don't I just sin right now? Bonhoeffer says this about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without requiring personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So I'll come in. I would argue that cheap grace is the primary threat to the church in the West today. Listen, guys, the American church doesn't need more TikTok influencers, okay? So many everywhere. Everywhere, and they say so many things. Mostly unbiblical, but sometimes. You know, we got plenty of those. We got great worship albums, man. It's incredible. Oh, Maverick City, boom, 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 in my car, in my shower. Yes, amazing. We got big buildings. We got lots of branding. The American church does not need any more of that. The greatest threat to the American church right now is that for some reason, Christianity has lost its grip on grace. The very fundamental reality of all that Christianity is built upon, the American church has lost all of it. And instead, we've given people a watered-down, broken, flimsy, disrespectful, cheap grace. And here's how we've done that. Notice we just, as Christians, we don't talk about sin that much anymore. I mean, honestly, like, when's the last time you were in a service and you're like, oh, wow, sin, yes, I got it. I should probably figure that out, you know? We don't talk about sin. And if we do, we trivialize it. We talk about it as something that we own, something that we do occasionally, but really we're really good people. And here's the problem, Saul Company. If you're a really good person, then why did God have to die for you? So we trivialize sin. And when we trivialize sin, we cheapen grace because Jesus Christ died for our sin. So if the very reason why he died is not actually that important, then why would there need to be grace? So we trivialize sin. We cheapen grace and we dishonor Jesus, all in an effort to make Christianity bite-sized and relevant. But Saul Company, when we do that, the church dies because the essential part of grace is this. It was not cheap, it was costly. 
And I need you to get this. Honestly, guys, this entire week I was kind of stressed because I'm like, this is such an intense sermon. Like, I feel it right now and I'm preaching it to you, okay? But I was like, this is the most important thing about your life. If you do not understand the costly weight of grace, you will never understand your sin condition and you will never receive a savior. See, grace is a paradox. Do you guys like paradoxes? They're delightful. It's like one thing, but two things in one. I mean, it's ex very exciting. It's like everything. It's so beautiful. Here's what grace is. It's in a paradox. It is simultaneously completely free to you. Like if you're here, I met like nine of you guys out in the hallway that this is like your first time ever hearing the gospel, so let me rip it. If you're here and you have not yet received the good news of Jesus, the grace of God is free to you. You can't bring anything to him. You can't earn it. You can't get it from him. You just receive it. It's a gift. Jesus is a spiritual Santa giving you the gift of salvation. That's what he is. You don't pay for it. You don't earn it. Your resume means nothing at the foot of Jesus. It is all a gift, completely free. That's true. And yet the paradox of grace is that it's also incredibly costly. It's free for you but costly for God. Why? Because in order for him to forgive you of your sins, he had to send his son to die for you. And the American church has lost that right there. Let me make it incredibly clear for you. Christianity is not about anything else except that right there. The unbelievable grace of God and the costly nature of it. And I belabor this point because unless you understand the weighty cost of grace, you'll end up living a life that dishonors Jesus. You'll trivialize your sin, you'll pretend like it doesn't matter that much, and you'll look at your bloodied, stained savior on the cross and say, you know what? I'd rather have my momentary sin than follow him. This is what grace is. Bonhoeffer describes the costly nature of grace like this. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it's the call, cost us to call, calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives the man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. It is grace because it justifies the sinner, and above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his own son. You were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up to us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Here's where I just went off over like 10 minutes about cheap grace. Because if you do not understand the gravity of grace, the rest of your life will be divine, defined by verse 15. You'll live the rest of your life sinning, not understanding that the very sin that you're choosing to do is the exact sin that put Jesus on that cursed tree. And unless you understand the cost of the crucified Savior for you, the gravity of sin and the cost of grace, you will not fight sin. Sin will own you. And you'll get to an 80-year-old life and you'll look back at a life poorly lived, a life that dishonored Jesus because you thought that grace was cheap. So Saul Company, if you wanna live a life that honors Jesus, you need to understand the gravity of grace. But here's what you else need to understand. 
the slavery of sin. Verse 16 says this. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin had become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now you present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Okay. So you might have noticed the whole sermon is about sin. Yes. So what is it? Let's define it. Okay, here's what sin is. Sin is, as a working definition, anything that is out of alignment with the heart or the word of God. That would be thinking or doing while not limited to pride, lust, sexual morality, drunkenness, greed, anger, covetousness, idolatry, and disobedience. Here's what sin is. It is subtle yet seductive. It is like cocaine. It feels good in a moment, but it destroys your life. And here's what Romans 6 says it is. It enslaves you. See, the logic of Paul in this text is by saying, if you obey what you obey, you'll become a slave of. If you obey your sin, you'll become a slave of your sin. If you obey your desires, you'll become a slave of your desires. If you obey your wants, you'll become a slave of your wants. But if you obey God, you'll become a slave of righteousness. You'll live a life of fruit and abundance and life, but if you obey sin, your life will die. And I know, I know this sounds incredibly intense, this analogy of slavery to sin, but I think all of us actually know what this feels like. You watch porn once when you're in the fourth grade. You watch it twice, and some of you have lived your entire lives watching it every day, not knowing how to dead a day through without porn and masturbation. You take a drink once, the first weekend of your time here in college. You think to yourself, no, nah, I'm not going to get hammered. But then the next weekend you do because of the social pressure. And now every single weekend for the last three years, you have spent your time here at college waiting for the weekend so you can get drunk to forget about your problems. You gossip once about your friend. And you kind of put it in a Christian veneer, you're like, oh my gosh, pray for this person. Okay, whatever. It's just true. We all do it, but maybe you do it extra. Okay, so you gossip about your friend once, and then it's your coworker, and then it's your parents, and then it's other Christians, and now you live your entire life hypercritical of everyone, and you're bitter inside. This is what sin does. You obey sin, and then you think you own it, but then it begins to own you. Many of you guys know what this feels like. Being chained to a sin, you don't want to define your life, but you have no choice, for you're a slave to that sin. Okay. I think most of us grew up around a brand of Christianity, maybe a religious type, where we thought that God didn't want us to sin because God's a fun hater. You know what I'm saying? He's like, anything fun, kick, hate it. That's what we think. That's what we think of God. But I want to make this really clear to you. The reason why God hates your sin is not because he hates fun. It's because he hates how it enslaves you. 
It's because he doesn't want you to be a person who experiences hell in your eternity and hell right now. You know what hell feels like? Being enslaved to your sin, having no ability to fight it. Every single day you wake up and all you want to do is not be enslaved to that thing, and yet you are. That is what living hell feels like. God hates your sin not because he doesn't want you to have fun, but because he hates the way that it enslaves you. And this is so important that you need to understand that sin enslaves you because unless you do, you'll never actually want to kill it. Listen, Salt Company, sin is not something to manage. I don't know where we got that notion in Christianity, but it's like, oh, your sin. It's like you pet it, you feed it, you wash it. You know, it's a dog. That's what I'm implying. It's, it's like a dog you take care of. Like Boba, Julie's dog. It's such, so cute, but horrible dog. But <laughs> she wants to like smell your back when you meet it. It's such an unfortunate reality. Moving on. Many of us have been taught to manage our sin. It's a scoreboard. You sin a lot, you need to go get a lot of forgiveness. I know you've got some sin, but don't worry about it. You're better than the murderers. That's how we're taught to think about sin. We manage our sin. We justify our sin. We have wishful thinking towards our sin, but we do not kill our sin. And if you want to honor Jesus with your life, if you want to live a life of holiness and flourishing and joy, you need to learn how to kill your sin, Salt Company. So the question is, how do we kill our sin? We confess. In campus group. Listen, some of you guys are not in campus group yet, and if you're not in campus group, that's fine, but you need to find another context by which it is the culture to confess your sin publicly. And if you don't have that, then you need to join your campus group or actually go. Because it is in the context of campus group that you need to learn how to confess your sin. Listen, here's what James said. I'm paraphrasing for a second, but I just want to tell you. You do not need to confess your sins for God to forgive you. You need to confess your sins so that you would be healed. Because your sin is owning you and burdening you. So you need to go to campus group this week and confess it all. But you need to do more than you need to confess. You need to repent. Okay? Confession is acknowledgement privately and publicly. Repentance is turning away from it. Okay? Here's what the Bible describes as repentance. We do not just see our sin and say, oh, man, I just hate that I'm struggling with that. We say that is dishonoring to Jesus. Now I'm going to turn from that sin and turn to Jesus. I'm going to make a decision in my life to say I don't want that sin to own me anymore. I want to own it. I'm turning towards Jesus. That's repentance. But we don't stop there. We act. We put in boundaries and accountability in our life that would help us to fight that sin more and more. Repentance is not just a heart position. It's a life change. So what do we do? We confess. We actually talk about our sin. Like some of you guys have never confessed your sin, and I know it's the scariest thing to imagine ever, but it is literally the most life-giving thing ever because you're going to be like, holy cow, I'm a broken sinner, and other people will be like, yeah, same. Confess your sin. Then we repent of it. We turn from it. Thirdly, we act upon it. And the fourth thing is we just repeat that cycle every week for the rest of our lives. Like that's just what we do. Repeat, repeat, repeat. That's what it feels like to be a Christian. And if you do those things, if you confess, confess, repent, and act, and repeat, you will become a holier person, guaranteed by the Spirit of God, and you'll learn how to kill sin. And so, if you do not learn how to kill sin, it is going to kill you. And I want to be really clear about sin here. If you're here, and you're thinking to yourself, Confessing, repenting, acting, and repeating is for the crazy people out there who are doing those crazy things, and you do not see that you have sin. 
the Bible would call you a liar. If you do not get confronted by your sin, but you are comfortable with it, there is a great chance that you are not a Christian. Because the Spirit of God is not neutral. So when he comes into your life, everything that is sin, he begins to point it out. He is living and active and through the word of God is piercing into your heart and marrow. You cannot be neutral about sin. You either love it because you are of the world or you hate it and you kill it because you are of Christ. If you're not convicted by your sin, it could be that you're not a Christian yet. Okay, so here's my invitation for you. What if this spring you actually joined a campus group? For some of you in this room, you just realized you weren't a Christian by the power of God. Hopefully you get saved tonight. Anyways, either way, you go. You go to campus group. And I want you to share that. Like I am here, not because I think I'm like a really Christian person, but because I realize on Thursday that I am not convicted by my sin. I see it, but I love it. I'm comfortable with it. I'm not convicted by it. So I'm going to go to campus group and share. For many of you in this room, you actually have something in your life that you have never shared with anyone. Your deepest, darkest sin in the closet, in your attic, or whatever. You need to go to campus group this week and actually confess it. And what you will be met with is grace. Not cheap grace, but costly grace. And you might even understand for maybe the first or the realest time why Jesus had to die for you. Go to campus group this week and confess your sin. Okay. So we get to this point. It's been dark for like 20 minutes. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, Tony, what if I know I'm a slave to my sin, but I want freedom? Like, how do I get that? Part three, freedom through obedience. Yes. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Finally, something hopeful. Thanks be to God. Like, holy cow, that was a long breath. Anyways, here's the bad news. We are enslaved to our sin. But here's the good news. Jesus died to set us free, which means at an identity level, we are no longer slaves but sons. So here's the key that unlocks all of the Christian life. That leads to a life of flourishing and joy and peace with God. Which, by the way, that's the title of our series because, listen, some of you guys are at peace with God in the sense that you have received Jesus Christ, but you do not feel at peace with him because your sin is getting in the way. So what sin does is often strips us from our peace with God. So what is, how do we get to a life of freedom, joy, peace, love, grace, righteousness? One word, obedience which sounds like bad news again. You're like, dang it, we just went through 20 minutes of bad news. Where's the good news? Yes, this is the good news, obedience. Here's why. Because obedience is what leads to true freedom. What Paul says in verse 20 is he describes a situation of false freedom. 
And he says, listen, you used to not have to be obedient or righteous. Like as a non-Christian, you don't have to be obedient or righteous at all. You have no obligation, but you don't even have an opportunity. You used to be able to do whatever you do, wanted to do. And yet, that led to a life of shame and regret. Listen, some of you guys know what this is like. You have so much freedom, yet you feel so enslaved. You're making decisions based on what you want to do, and yet it's producing a life of regret and shame. So in a sense, you're free, but you're not free. Freedom is also a paradox, second paradox of the sermon, yes. Here's what freedom is like. It's much like my relationship with nacho cheese Doritos, yes, okay. Holy cow, specifically the family size variety. So there was this moment back in high school where you know when you open up a family size bag of Doritos and you're like, the waft hits you, you're like, wow. I mean, it literally is like a worshipful experience for a second. You know, not Jesus, but you know, it's good. It's a good experience. And I remember uh, I had this moment where I had no self-control. So I opened up this bag and I sat down with the bag and then I ate the Doritos and then by the time I got up, there, there, were more, there were no more Doritos, you know? Like it was a completely empty family-sized bag. And I was like, wow, that was such a good experience. It wasn't. And then I go to practice. And you know what happens to me? I puke orange. That's right. Yes. Just projectile vomiting orange. <laughs> Smelled like nacho cheese, you know? I mean, it was a horrible experience. Freedom. Yes. So... bring it back. This is what freedom of the world feels like. Guys, in that moment, I had so much freedom. I had the bag. I owned it. <laughs> no one was going to take it from me. I could eat every chip if I wanted to, and I did. I followed all of my dreams, my ambitions, my desires. I mean, I made it in that moment. And yet, even though it felt like I had freedom in the moment, within two hours, throwing up in a garbage can, perfectile orange, didn't feel so free, let me tell you. Here's what Paul is trying to say. The way the world defines freedom is you being able to do whatever you desire. That is only freedom if there weren't consequences for it. But if there are consequences for your actions, then that freedom that leads to death will destroy your future. That is not true freedom, okay? Here's the biblical vision of freedom. What if the freedom you were designed for is not you following all of your impulses? I want Dorito, I eat Dorito. I want Taco Bell, I eat Taco Bell. I wanna get that drink, I drink that drink. I wanna sleep with that person, I sleep with that person. What if the vision of freedom in the Bible wasn't you being able to do all that you want to do, but you being able to live the way that God has designed you to live? Here's what Paul is trying to say. If you are obedient to God, your life will not be defined by shame and regret, but by gratitude and rejoicing. Obedience is the pathway to true freedom. Here's also what this text says. I love in verse 17, he says that we're obedient out of a heart desire. Most of the ways that you guys have learned how to be obedient is like a bad person, be obedient. Like that's your perspective. This is either God or your parents. Go, be obedient. That's the perspective that you have. You are obedient out of a place of obligation. But what Paul wants to teach you is that the obedience out of a place of a heart condition is an opportunity, not an obligation. 
it is an opportunity to step into a life of holiness. Listen, some of you guys' perspective on holiness is that it is what the crusty, crunchy people do, you know? Boo, their lives must be horrible. Holiness is a life of flourishing. Listen, I wish I could explain to you in 30 minutes how beautiful it is to live a life aligned with the heart of God. A life of holiness is what you were made to experience. It is not a worse life, it is a better life. It is a life that leads to true freedom. And guys, in my own life, I have never regretted being obedient to Jesus. And in the moment, it always feels bad, man. It just does. I don't know why. I wish I was holier. If I was holier, it'd probably feel good, but it feels bad, okay? The moment of obedience kind of feels like when you're about to ask someone out or ask your parents for money. It's just uncomfy, you know? You're like, oh, this doesn't feel natural. And it's not because we're at war with our sin, Romans 7, see you next week. Anyways, that's what obedience feels like. It feels uncomfortable. And yet every single time that I've had the opportunity to be obedient to Jesus, I've always felt more free. And guys, the truth is, I have never felt more free as a Christian, honestly. And that's not because of my circumstances. Honestly, guys, my mortgage is 7%. Like, how is that possible? There's only like 10% of you even understand what that means. It means my payment is so high. That's what it means. Hurt with me. Okay, so circumstantially, I'm chained to my mortgage. I'm married, which means I have less relational and sexual freedom than I've ever had in my entire life. I'm about to have a kid, which means Brock Lee is going to run after me and be like, give me money. That's what Brock is going to, it's not actually Brock. Brock Thorne was like, really? I was like, no, it's not. That's a joke. <clears throat> Circumstantially, I have less freedom than I've ever had. But in my soul, I have more freedom now than I could have ever imagined at 18 years old. I'm way more free from the slavery and the bondage of man's opinion. I am way more free from the slavery and bondage of the porn addiction that I had when I was 18. I am way more free than the slavery and bondage of the bitterness that I had in my heart towards my father. I have never felt more free than I am right now, and that is through obedience through Jesus Christ. Listen, if you want to experience true freedom, I'm trying to share with you in this text. Freedom is not being able to do what you want to do. That's Doritos. Don't do it. Freedom is living as you were designed to live. Listen, some of you guys are here and you're settling for a worse life. And you spent 19 years doing what you want to do. And let me ask you, how is that going? How is the condition of your soul? Are you not enslaved to all of your desires and your, your sin? Do you not want to taste true freedom? What Jesus wants to offer you is freedom not to do all that your flesh wants to do for you to live in holiness the way he designed you to live. So obedience is the pathway to true freedom. As we close out this section, a couple different aspects of obedience I want to hit on. Number one, delayed obedience is disobedience. Christians are always been saying crap like, I'll do it tomorrow. Listen to me. It's not your dishes, okay? It is honoring Jesus. The word of God requires obedience today. So what does it look like for you to be obedient today? Second part, partial obedience is disobedience. Benjamin Franklin used to have a Bible 
And what he would do is he would literally take a knife and cut out all the parts that he didn't like. Think about that. First of all, think about how precise you'd have to be. My Bible's tiny. I mean, I was just like, what? How's that even possible? Many of you guys don't do that physically, but you do that implicitly. You read the word of God, and you're like, oh, don't like that one. Okay, Romans 5, the peace of God, great. Romans 6, slaves through sin, don't like that one. I'm fine with, like, the no greed and murder part. I just don't want to live a sexually pure life. I'm fine with the be nice to my neighbor part. I just don't want to live a life free from drunkenness. You take a knife in your mind, and you cut out pieces of the Bible that you don't like, and you think that's what it means to be obedient to God. Partial obedience is disobedience. Lastly, obedience is not a feeling, it's faithfulness. Listen, obedience always feels uncomfy, man. Like, I, I wish, I wish it was different. I wish I could tell you, listen, you just do this enough and it gets easier. No, it gets harder. <laughs> Disappointing. Obedience is not something that you feel, it's something that you choose. And you choose it out of a heart of being regenerated by the love of Christ. Obedience is not a feeling, it's faithfulness. So as I call the worship band back up, in review, let's close our time together. If we want to take sin seriously, here's what we need. We need to understand the gravity of grace. Grace is not cheap, it is costly. And cheap grace is not grace. What the church needs in America today are not people who are cooler Christians with bigger social media platforms. What the church needs is people who have understood the grace of God. Part two. The slavery of sin. Sin is subtle yet seductive. You do not own sin. Sin owns you. What you choose to obey becomes who you are. Therefore, because we understand the slavery of sin, we need to kill sin with a passion. Lastly, the freedom of obedience. Freedom is not found in doing what you want to do. Freedom is living as you ought to live. And what God wants for you is a life defined by holiness. Okay. I want to close our time out from an article that I read titled, Worse Than Any Affliction, Why I Refuse to Grumble by Joni Erickson Tata. I want to tell you of Joni's story. Joni is a woman in her 80s, and when she was 16 years old, she dived into a lake and her whole body was paralyzed. The only thing that was left unparalyzed was her right arm. That gave her the grace that she saw from God to feed herself for the last six decades. About a year ago, she started to realize that her right arm was atrophying. And slowly, day by day, she lost control over her arm, which means that at this point, Joni, from the neck down, is completely paralyzed. She cannot even feed herself. Someone must come to her house to feed this woman. Furthermore, recently, as her body is decaying, her lungs started to atrophy which means that twice a day for 15 minutes, Joni Erickson Tata has to put on a vest that feels like someone is jackhammering her heart just to keep her lungs from not killing her. She asked the physician, how often do I have to do this? And he said, as long, as often as you want to live. It's in that context, she writes this article about grumbling and complaining, about how complaining is a sin to God and how she doesn't want to live a sinful life. She says this, my flesh is wasting away. Who would blame me if I complained? Certainly not the world. It is natural for them to expect an old lady in a wheelchair to grumble over her losses. 
See, Joni is a deep follower of Jesus. She's seen the grace of God for the last six decades of her life. And she is at the point of her development and her walk with Jesus where her sensitivity to her sin and her seriousness of sin is so real that she would see complaining and grumbling as dishonoring to King Jesus in a setting by which she no longer can feed herself. She needs to wear this vest twice a day just to stay alive. Joni writes this about her fight against sin. Did I have a right to complain? Actually, I possess no real rights. I laid them all at the foot of the cross, agreeing with 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. You are not your own, for you are bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. The Son of God was ripped to shreds, then hung up like a drain, hung up to drain like a bloody piece of meat on a hook. And if this is what Jesus endured to rescue me, I refuse to dignify any sin that impaled him to that cursed tree. I will not coddle anything that helped drive the nails deeper. I relinquish my right to complain so that I might glorify Almighty God through my hardships. Anything less shrinks my soul. So how come you do see sin the way Joni does? Do you see the way that she is serious about her sin? Listen, here's what she says. I refuse to dignify any sin that impaled into that cursed tree. If Joni is convicted by complaining, then we have much to be convicted about, Saul Company. I have much to be convicted about in my life. See, the reason why we take sin seriously is not just because of what it would do to us, but because of what it did to Jesus. And if you're here and you would say with your mouth that you love Jesus, then say with your life that you wanna repent of your sins and follow him. And if you're here tonight and your experience with sin is a brand new concept and you're here right now and you're realizing the ways that your sin has impaled him to that cursed tree, grace, is costly, but it's free to you. So in a moment, I'm gonna get on my knees. I invite you to join me if you feel comfortable and you can. And I'm gonna ask God that from this room, he would send out hundreds of people into the city of St. Paul who aren't impressive people, who aren't empowered people, but they are people who have tasted and seen the glory of God and they have seen their sin and they wanna repent of it. Let me pray that that be true for us. Father, every great Christian movement in the history of the world started with the gospel being proclaimed, the spirit falling, and people being overwhelmed by their sin. Father, may it be true of this. Would your spirit come? Would the conviction flow? See, Saul Company, what St. Paul needs is not more people who are impressive, but more people who have seen their sin and want to repent of it. So, Father, here's my prayer for this room, that we would not be people of cheap grace, that we would see the costly grace of Christ, the sin that hung him there, and we would say to him, I want to, out of a place of obedience, out of a place of a heart regenerated, live a life of holiness to him. So Father, would you do it in this room?
Would your spirit fall? Would the spirit be heavy? Would you expose to us the sin in our lives? Would you convict us of the ways that we do not align with your heart and your word? And would you show us that a life of confession and repentance and action is the best life? Father, I pray for hundreds of people in this room that their lives would be marked with freedom, not slavery. Because of your grace, your abundant mercy, your sacrifice on the cross. Father, I pray that as we leave this place, we would live lives of obedience to you and ultimately Jesus. That from our mouths we would sing. That we sing to a God who loves us and died for us. And with our lives we would say that we want to repent of our sins because of his sacrifice for us. And Father, would we take sin seriously? Not just because of what it did to us, but because of what it did to Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.